You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On December 16th, 1929, thousands of Igbo women gathered outside the colonial government compound in Apobo. They were there to demand the end of British imperialism in eastern Nigeria, though the British seemed oblivious to the intention and motivations of these women. What the British saw were erratic, reactive women wielding sticks and stones, bearing down on the post office, native court, and dispensary. The women pressed against the bamboo fence surrounding the compound, demanding change. They believed the British wouldn't fire on a group of women. In Igbo society, men did not attack women, and the women believed that the British operated under the same code of cultural conduct. But the British didn't believe that women were capable of making war, of organizing sophisticated networks of protests, or that women could destroy government buildings with nothing more than their hands, sticks, and stones. When the women refused to back down, the lieutenant in charge ordered his soldiers to open fire. They shot 67 bullets into the crowd, and each found a victim. At least 31 women died that day from bullet wounds. Perhaps eight more drowned when the crowd pushed them into the river nearby as they tried to escape the gunfire. Blood splattered, women screamed and cried, and the smoking guns cleared. The Igbo Women's War of 1929 came to a violent end. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Elizabeth Garner-Mazarek. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous auger and excavator-level patrons. Hannah, Lauren, Colin, Edward, Iris, Susan, Denise, Agnes, Jesse, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com 
backslash digpodcast to learn more. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that each of our episodes relies on the research and writing of historians and other scholars. The Nigerian Women's War, or Igbo Women's War of 1929 in particular, has a rich and deep historiography. It's been the subject of several standalone monographs and dozens of book chapters and journal articles dating all the way back to 1938. Indeed, the historiography of this four-week event demonstrates acutely just how important context is to studying history. In order to understand why, for example, we should refer to this event as a war instead of the ABBA riots of 1929 requires a detailed understanding of the context that shaped Igbo and Abibio women's social, economic, and political power before and during British colonialism in Nigeria. To assemble that contextual material, I relied most heavily on the incredible synthesis and documentary reader created by Toyin Fiola and Adam Paddock in The Women's War of 1929, A History of Anti-Colonial Resistance in Eastern Nigeria, as well as the works of Wandu Achebe, Chima Kori, David Pratton, and Judith Van Allen. The broader history of British imperialism in eastern Nigeria is similarly deep and rich, and I will post some suggested titles to get you started should you be interested in digging a little deeper. On November 23, 1929, Mark Imerwa, an unemployed Igbo schoolteacher who lived on a Christian mission compound in the eastern Nigerian village of Oloko, was hired by Warrant Chief Okugo to begin the tax assessment of his territory. One of his stops was the compound of an Igbo woman, Wanyirwa, and her family. Warrant Chief Okugo got the order from the British district officer, as the British believed that the tax assessment and counting performed between 1925 and 1927 had been done incorrectly, and that the colonial state was missing out on potential taxes. In 1929, Captain John Cook, who was temporarily assigned as District Officer of Bindi, called together the warrant chiefs of the Aloko Native Courts. He decided that the tax records were in disarray, and he instructed all the warrant chiefs to count all men, women, children, and livestock so that they could more accurately establish tax bills. He told the chiefs that the rate itself would not change, nor would women be taxed. But the chiefs and the women of eastern Nigeria who learned of the counting assumed otherwise. The Igbo-dominated region of today's Nigeria is in the southernmost part of the country. In the colonial period, this region was known as Eastern Nigeria, which included the provinces of Onitsha, Wari, Oweri, Ogoja, and Calabar. Today, the Igbo make up the third largest ethnic group in Nigeria. The Hausu Fulani are number one at 29% of the population, the Yoruba are number two at 21%, and the Igbo are 18%. So, even when we say third largest, hopefully these smallish numbers are indicative of just how many different ethnic groups and, and language groups have been smushed together by British imperialism. Yeah. 
The British employed indirect rule in Nigeria, which required fewer actual British people and relied on the administrative collaboration of locals. The highest positions in the colony, the district officers and commanding officers in the military and such, were always white British men, but the rest of the day-to-day administration was done by Nigerians, Igbo, Hausa, Oruba, Ibibio, Andoni, Ogoni, etc., etc. There were lots of ethnic and language groups in Nigeria, just as Avril mentioned, and that is, of course, still true today. In Hausa and Yoruba-dominated regions of Nigeria, there were centralized states that were largely familiar to the Europeans. In those places, the British used sneaky treaties to adapt the pre-existing governing system to establish colonial authority. That wasn't really possible in the Igbo-dominated region. The British did not really understand the Igbo. They made assumptions about the Igbo with little actual knowledge of the people or customs. They saw the quote-unquote decentralized states of eastern Nigeria as war-prone and at the mercy of internal slave trading, and thus unstable. The British wanted to control trade in and out of Nigeria, and to do so, they needed quote-unquote stability and peace in all regions. Since they assumed they couldn't make treaties work for them in the eastern Igbo provinces the way they had in the north, the British sent soldiers and then police in to civilize the Igbo and pacify the region. According to historians Toyan Fiola and Adam Paddock, British pacification meant, quote, removing obstacles to trade, including toll fees, internal slave trading, and regional fights between ethnic groups. The tolls were an important source of income for a number of the ethnic groups the British sought to pacify, and unsurprisingly, there was much resistance to British attempts to end the practice in the early 20th century. As historian Chima Kori notes, the British conquest of eastern Nigeria was, quote, a spasmodic struggle for control of Igbo societies. The Ikumeko, for for example, were powerful toll collectors in eastern Nigeria and mobilized military resistance to the British for over a decade. The British sent their military in to put the Ikumeko movement down three times in 1902, 1904, and 1909. Some historians date Ikumeko resistance to going as far as 1914 or perhaps even 1918. Other British colonial military expeditions include those to Orokpo in 1901, Uzeri in 1903, Etua in 1904, Izonium in 1905, Aharia in 1905, Eza in 1905, and Achara in 1905. World War I was a turning point for the British as they realized they needed both the bodies and the resources of eastern Nigeria to help them win the war against the Germans and Austro-Hungarians. After the war, the British implemented the warrant chief system in an effort to bring the eastern provinces under indirect British colonial administration. The warrant chiefs were the British solution to colonial administration in eastern Nigeria. The British used existing structures of administration in House of Fulani and Yoruba regions to lay a colonial system on top of uh, But the Igbo decentralized state made tapping into existing systems challenging. Decentralized in this context meant that each town and rural village basically had their own governing system. They might be hereditary monarchies, direct democracies, gerontocracies, or councils of elders, or any other number of systems. 
And often those villages and ethnic groups were in competition or skirmishes with one another. So for colonizing in the indirect rule model, there was no one-size-fits-all solution. And yet, the warrant chiefs were modeled on what the British had done in the House of Lands to the north. The British set up native courts from which warrant chiefs, locals, would adjudicate legal disputes and crimes for their region. The warrant chiefs were sometimes drawn from traditional or hereditary leaders from those regions, but more often, they were the early Igbo collaborators, who were considered traitors by many of their kin and neighbors. The warrant chief system was wildly corrupt. Chiefs took bribes, forced locals to pay unauthorized taxes, forced women into marriages by claiming the district officer demanded it, and all sorts of other abuses. They were almost universally hated. The system really went unchecked until the 1929 Women's War. And this is notable because the warrant chief system took power from the traditional political structures of the Igbo region and without any input from the Igbo people themselves. Exactly. Taxation was an important part of Britain's civilizing mission in, in Nigeria. It allowed the British to expand their influence in the region through mass transportation systems, which were first built via forced local labor, and to fund the administration system that would, theoretically, make the Nigerians capable of self-governance eventually. Direct taxation was first introduced in eastern Nigeria in 1927 and 28. Taxation was already underway everywhere west of the Niger River, mostly Yoruba territory, by 1916, but the British were reluctant to introduce taxation to the Igbo without significant military occupation to back up the system. And obviously, in 1916, the British were at war with the Germans. The warrant chief networks were meant, in part, to help facilitate taxation in the 1920s, and did. In 1928, the British sent W.E. Hunt to educate the Igbo on how taxation worked and to deliver the good news that direct taxation would replace the Roads and Rivers Ordinance, which had been the primary source of forced labor up to that point. Hunt reported that the villagers and the warrant chiefs he visited were quite outspoken against taxation, but he remained convinced that it would be fine. The Igbo did not cooperate when the warrant chiefs came in 1927 to assess them for taxation. So ultimately, the tax rates for 1928 were based on estimates. Still, all men were taxed in 1928 without any protest. As Viola and Paddock note, British administrators were emboldened by the early success of taxation in 1928. When Captain James Cook issued the recounting of a loco human and animal assets, he started a chain reaction. Cook's predecessor had lied to the Iloko native court two years prior and practically sprung taxation on the people of the region. So the warrant chiefs believed Cook was deceiving them, as his predecessor had before, which in turn started the rumor mill churning. By the time that Mark Imerwa got to one year was compound, she was expecting something like this. All the women under the Iloko native court jurisdiction expected colonial men to come accounting. According to Wanyoji, a Christian woman who took part in the protest at Okugo's home, she heard Wanyerwa shouting for the women of the village to come to her. Wanyogi was coming out of church when she heard the shouting. And when she and her companions got to Wanyerwa, we, quote, asked her, what are you shouting for? And she replied, 
Emerwa has said that I should count my goats and my fowls. I told him, I am only a woman. What have I to count in the way of goats and fowls? Emerwa then held me by the throat. With oil on my hands, I was preparing oil then. I held his hands and his clothes were soiled with oil. He ran and reported this to his father, and Okugo sent for me. Okugo questioned me. He asked me my reason for daubing his messenger with oil and said that the matter would be reported to the district officer. End quote. Upon hearing about Wanyerwa's confrontation with Amirwa, the women, including Wanyoji, mobilized. They descended on Amerwa's house. Wanyoji recalled that, quote, We sang and danced for Amerwa and shouted, Tell us why we should be counted. Tell us why we should be counted. Amerwa broke under their pressure and insisted that he was just doing the bidding of Okugo and that it was Okugo who wanted to count the women and who said that the women should pay taxes. The assembled women demanded that Amerwa take them to Okugo so that he could admit to this offense himself. The gathered women used traditional forms of social control to shame Emerwa and force him to take them to Okugo, which he did. Though British colonialism had been chipping away at the traditional social and political structures that governed Igbo society since their invasion in the 1890s, key institutions and shared rules persisted. Igbo systems of governance and social organization in the pre-colonial period were highly complex, intertwined with religious beliefs, and divided between men and women. As summarized by Phil and Paddock, Igbo society was made up of a complex system of, quote, titles, age grades, and secret societies, with separate institutions for men and women. Wandu Achebe has argued that Igbo governance and authority was first divided between the spiritual realm and the human realm, and then, within each of those realms, there were branches of governance that were divided between men and women. The spiritual realm was always slightly more powerful than the human, so that when a message came from a, for example, female masked spirit, Uh, That would trump a human village elder's proclamation, even if he was a man. We discussed the spiritual side of things a bit more in detail in my episode on Ahebi Awabe, but I think the best place to get a clear sense of the system is actually in Wandu Achebe's book, Farmers, Traders, Warriors, and Kings. In the human realm, the state was divided into male and female branches of government. Wandu Achebe notes that the Nsuka region, the male consisted of the Onyishi, and his council of titled executives. The women's branch of government was divided into two institutions, the Assembly of Daughters and the Assembly of Wives. Sometimes those two branches combined into a larger women's assembly. The Assembly of Daughters included all married, unmarried, divorced, and widowed daughters of a lineage or community. The daughters held regular meetings at the home of the oldest daughter in the community, and they sent representatives to the men's assembly to deliver information and decisions made by the daughters. The daughters held considerable authority in their communities. Wando Achebe asserts that they were the, quote, supreme court of appeal and the custodians of religious morality. The daughters dealt with quarrels between women, accusations of poisoning or witchcraft, performed purification rituals, and intervened when necessary in the proceedings of the men's assembly. To ignore the authority and ruling of the daughters was to risk banishment in the wrath of all the dead daughters and wives of the community. The assembly of wives was less powerful than the daughters and was headed by the eldest wife in the community, who, quote, regulated the behavior of women, advised and admonished wives, and generally mothered everyone. 
end quote. The wives served as the lower court where issues between women were taken first, though again, their authority existed mostly in dealing with women in cases involving husbands who mistreated their wives or adulterous husbands. The assembly of wives could pronounce punishment for men. Both assemblies performed a range of additional functions, religious and practical, in the community, and served as an important check on the power and authority of the men's assembly. As Achebe notes, in some communities, the two assemblies were one, the women's assembly, and performed all the duties above. Wanyerwa was an older member of her community in Oloko, and may have held a leadership position in one of the assemblies. Protests, boycotts, and strikes were one of the first tools that the various female assemblies employed for social control and punishment in Igbo communities, and those kinds of actions were organized by community elders like Wanyerwa. Wanyerwa and the other elder women in the region were aware that a tax reassessment was coming. Rumors had been circulating since 1928 that the British wanted to start counting and taxing women. According to Ikodia, one of the participants of the Women's War, quote, about four months ago, we heard that women were being counted by their chiefs. Women became annoyed at this and decided to ask who gave the order, as they did not wish to accept it. As we went to various markets, we asked other women whether they too had heard the rumor about the counting of women. Prior to the confrontation between Wanyerwa and Mark Amirwa, Representatives from these women's councils had asked several warrant chiefs about the rumors that they were counting women. Each chief they visited confirmed that the district officer had ordered them to count women and that women would be taxed. They replied, reports Ikodia, quote, that they had heard it. We heard also that a local chiefs had counted their respective women. Okugo was the last man to count, end quote. According to Wakaji, another participant in the war, the women demanded, quote, how could women who have no means themselves to buy food or clothing afford to pay tax? The women decided that they would wait until someone, quote, dared to come to us and say, pay your tax before they launched official action. As Akodia put it, quote, we women held a large meeting at which we decided to wait until we heard definitely from the person that the women were to be taxed, in which case we would make trouble, as we did not mind being killed for doing so, end quote. Together, they made a plan for how to handle attempted tax assessments. Wanyerwa followed that blueprint in her encounter with Mark Amerwa. For Igbo women, like Wanyerwa, British colonialism upset the political and economic stability of the region. On the political end, the native courts and warrant chiefs undermined the authority of the women's assemblies because the very purpose of the native courts was to adjudicate disputes in villages and between the villages. Before 1929, nearly all the warrant chiefs were men. As an aside, remember, Achebe knows that Ahebe Awabe was made warrant chief in her home region in 1918, but she was the exception to the rule. So authority to deal with the range of disputes was then yanked out of the women-controlled assemblies and placed under the jurisdiction of male-controlled colonial native courts. What's more, the way the British set up the warrant chiefs and native courts were, at their inception, offensive to Igbo society. As Fayola and Paddock note, the Igbo sent outcasts to initial meetings with British officials because they feared that the British meant to hold captive whomever they sent. And the Igbo highly valued their elders as decision makers, so they weren't going to just send them into the British, like, guns, right? But the British assumed the Igbo were sending their leaders and best men. So they appointed those individuals, which included at least one murderer, 
societal misfits, and generally just young, unseasoned men as the warrant chiefs. To the British, having eager, fit young men in the roles gelled well with their ideals of Victorian masculinity. So the dissonance between the two perspectives could not have been more off-putting. In the decade before the Women's War, many of the warrant chiefs were notoriously bad actors. They extorted, abused their power, and generally behaved badly by Igbo customs. The district officers, British men, mostly from military background, might have held the warrant chiefs in check in the early years of the system, but by the end of the 1920s, the native courts had expanded, and the British pulled back on their own manpower in the country, so that the district officers who remained either ignored or did not know the extent of the corruption until the 1929 Women's War. Economic disruption started well before the British invaded and set up a formal colony. The Igbo region had been changed demographically and economically by the Atlantic slave trade. Historians David Eltis and David Richardson estimate that about one in seven Africans shipped to the New World during the whole era of the transatlantic slave trade originated from the Bight of Biafra. Historians estimate that 80% of the people shipped from the Bight of Biafra were Igbo-speaking. Slavers bought yams to feed enslaved people on the Middle Passage across the Atlantic. They were instructed to buy at least 100,000 yams per 500 slaves, though in their profit-seeking, they often only bought half of that. But still, the demand for both yams and enslaved people created a market for these products that irreparably shifted the productive and social systems of West Africa. After the British abolished the slave trade in 1807, these regions were left with entire economies that relied on the slave trade. And so as a result, tons of enslaved people were then circulated within West and Central Africa. While yam production had long been part of Igbo measures of masculinity, the market for yams had expanded the significance of yams to Igbo men by the 19th century. Yam production was inextricably linked to uh, in Igbo culture to masculinity. Men were expected to be able to do the work to farm yams themselves. If they had to buy yams from the market, they were considered failures by their community members. We see this communicated quite starkly in the fiction of Chinua Achebe, uh, Nwandu Achebe's father, in Things Fall Apart. The main character Okonkwo's uber-masculinity is tied to his yam production, and significantly Okonkwo's father is perceived by the village as unmanly because he is a lazy yam farmer. Instead of clearing new land to grow yams, Okonkwo's father uses already cleared land, which is already stripped of nutrients and so produces low yield. Half of Okonkwo's choices in the novel seem to revolve around proving to everyone that he is not like his bad yam farming dad. According to historian Chima Corey, by the 1860s, the trade in palm oil replaced the trade in slaves. Corey writes that, quote, the export of palm oil to Liverpool from the Bight of Biafra in 1806 was 150 tons, and by 1829, it had reached over 8,000 tons. By the 1830s, Britain was importing about 10,000 tons of palm oil a year. Between 1855 and 1856, the entire African production of palm oil was around 40,000 to 42,000 tons. Out of this figure, 26,000 tons were exported through the Bight of Biafra. Historian Susan Martin argues that by the end of the 19th century, the markets for palm oil created ideologically driven divisions of labor among the Igbo. 
Corey disagrees somewhat with this, asserting that women remained important in both production and marketing from the 19th century onward. They were not only entitled to some of the palm oil, they were entitled to the kernels, which became quite important in the export market. Though perhaps not belonging in a rigid gendered labor division, the production of palm oil and yams were traditionally men's products. Both, however, relied on the labor of women and children. Wealthy men took multiple wives because it gave them a larger labor force. But the division of labor itself was never strict. Men typically plowed and built the mounds, but women also did this as needed. Yams required seven to eight months of cultivation, and during that time, women and children weeded and tended the crops. The crop yield itself, however, was attributed to the male head of household who, quote, owned the labor of his extended family. Not many women became large-scale traders of palm oil, but they controlled much of the buying and selling of palm kernels, which they processed by hand, smashing the kernels between rocks. Until the advent of mechanized nut processing, women were able to set prices and hold on to their little corner of the market in palm oil. After World War II, that would change, but that's a story for another day. Significantly, as several historians have argued, the British invasion actually created rigid gender divisions of labor, all while denying women many of the traditional forms of social, religious, political, and economic power that they'd held before colonial interference. The British always directed resources and trainings at boys and men, effectively cutting Igbo women off from these opportunities. As Corey notes, quote, colonial programs were male-driven, regardless of obvious female participation in agriculture and the difference women farmers could have made to agricultural productivity. The, quote, girls' cottages offered the practical training useful for homemaking. Um, and a quote for, from one of these uh, pamphlets is, the girls learn how to be good homemakers by doing just that in their own cottages. They do their own marketing and food preparation, cooking on a smokeless Indian stove built chiefly of mud. They eat together in family style and have their own living room. They learn to sew, not only by hand, but on the center's sewing machines. The girls operate their own kitchen near the cottages. They also have some work with poultry and will later have their own flock of chickens. Improved diets, a more hygienic mode of living, and wiser motherhood are emphasized in the course. So in addition to marginalizing traditional forms of women's political power, the British reinforcement of rigid Victorian gender roles disrupted the traditional forms of the balance of gendered power in Igbo society. By relegating women to the domestic sphere expected of proper British society, the British denied women access to their traditional forms of power and obliterated the careful system of checks and balances that made Igbo society work. Though Igbo society was patriarchal, women's assemblies and women who served in various essential religious functions, as gods, as the girlfriends and daughters of gods, as the female masked spirits, ensured that the men's branches of government were kept in balance and prevented from corruption. The British took much of that away through their colonial institutions like the native courts and education systems that socialized girls into homemaking. Traditionally, when dealing with women's issues or supporting women, there was a process in the women's assemblies. A woman in need of help consulted an elder. The elder would decide if the intervention was necessary. The assembly would approach the offending man and insist that he modify his behavior. If he persisted in incorrect behavior, the assemblies would ramp up the consequences. 
When necessary, women's assemblies used a range of tools at their disposal to shape behaviors and enforce social norms. They'd start with the entry-level confrontation. They might organize a sit-in at the offender's house, where they'd sing, dance, or chant outside the house until the offender acquiesced to their demands. If necessary, the women would organize a widespread strike in which women would not have sex with their husbands or would not do housework or cooking until change was achieved. If and when these measures did not work, or if a more drastic approach was necessary, the women would make war. They would assemble for a sleep-in, where they'd stay at the man's house all night, continuing their verbal abuses and maybe start to destroy this property. To have assembled women stay at your house overnight was considered a death curse in traditional Igbo beliefs. The most powerful weapon that women yielded in these instances was to sit on a man, during which they would expose their genitals to the offender and sometimes even hold him down and press their exposed bottoms onto him. Exposing genitals was powerful. It was akin to a sexual assault. If a man behaved so badly that he required sitting on, the community's male councils would have to acknowledge the severity of the situation and might enforce either a death penalty or banishment. For some men, being sat upon produced a shame so great that they committed suicide. It's important to reiterate here that among Igbo women, to ramp up to the level of sitting on a man was to make war. They might tear a man's house apart in the process or loot his belongings because both tactics were culturally appropriate when the Igbo made war with other groups. Sitting on a man or flashing their genitals at him were powerful attacks, which would bring immense shame upon him and potentially also pain as he would be held down, beaten, and then sat upon by dozens of women. When Amerwa told the women that he was only acting on Warrant Chief Okugo's orders, the women dis- dispatched messengers to neighboring villages with palm leaves to mobilize collective action against the offending Warrant Chief. That evening, November 23rd, the women followed Imirwa to Okugo's compound. They danced and shouted at Okugo, demanding to know why they should be counted. Okugo used violence to drive the women away. He sent his servants out to beat the women until they left. This attack was jarring to the women. In Igbo society, it was taboo to attack women. But Okugo was apparently uninterested in conforming to these norms. By the next night, women from Aba, Aweri, Iko Ekpeni, and other neighboring villages arrived in Oloko. They dressed for war, faces smeared with charcoal, heads bound with young ferns. They wore short loincloths and carried sticks wreathed in young palms. Then they marched on Okugo's compound. Fearful, Okugo sent a messenger to Bende, where the district office was, requesting police to stop the protesters. The assembled women sent their own representatives to Bende and learned that Okugo was trying to spread lies to get the district office to send more reinforcements. On the 26th, with hundreds of women in their entourage, the Iloko women's assemblies descended on Okugo's house again. This time, Okugo could not repel the women's advances. They made war on Okugo. The women tore at his compound, destroying fences and buildings. They dragged Akugo out of his hiding place, beat him, and then held him down. Hundreds of women took turns sitting on Akugo, placing their bare buttocks on his arms, chest, legs, and face. They humiliated him, shouted at him, and drove their point home. They would not be taxed, and they would not put up with his corruption as warrant chief any longer. 
The next day, November 27th, Captain Cook, the district officer, got to Aloko and found over 1,000 women waiting for him in the market. Rather than engaging the women in yet more violence, Cook assured the women, in writing, that no women would be taxed. The women demanded that Okugo be punished for his proxy attack on Wanyerwa and his abuses of the office. They wanted him removed from his position. Cook saw his work as done in Aloko, expecting that his promise that no women would be taxed had solved the problem, but he did arrest Okugo at the women's insistence. Cook took Okugo back to the district office in Bendy to stand trial. Significantly, Cook also took Okugo's cap to the women, the symbol of his position as warrant chief, and tossed it into the crowd of women. A great cheer went up, and the women celebrated their victory. Cook assumed that he'd put an end to the women's protests, but he, like so many of his countrymen, underestimated the root of the women's mobilization. The economic strain of taxation was certainly a pressing issue, but the women who made war on Akugo were also seeking a way to regain some of their political power in this British colony. When he tossed that warrant chief cap into the crowd, Cook handed the women a victory, not just a victory over Akugo and his abuses, but a victory over the British colonialism that had been eroding women's power and place in eastern Nigeria for a decade. Akugo's removal from office communicated to the women that their form of protest had worked to mollify the British colonial system, which meant that it could work again elsewhere. On December 3rd, the British affirmed the women's conclusions. Okugo was put on trial and found guilty of spreading information that would cause a riot and injuring women at the first protest at his house. This fueled the women of Oloko and their allies from neighboring villages instead of quelling them. They saw this as a victory and felt empowered that their actions had pressured the colonial government to make administrative changes. The 1929 Women's War was not the first nor the last collective action of Igbo women mobilized against colonialism. Women made war against colonial officials and later warrant chiefs for a range of issues. In one instance, the British attempted to institute what they considered modern sanitation systems in places like Enugo Iziki. Colonial representatives destroyed women's rainwater collection vessels in the name of sanitation until the women marched on the district office and he agreed to build a water borehole so that the conflict between the sanitation officers and the women would be moot. In 1925, women in Atta launched a dance movement protest that simply called for Europeans to leave Awari province. According to Chima Kori, the protest started in Atta in the Okigwe division of the Awari province as a result of the message sent to have been received by God. The message included forbidding men from growing cassava, regarded as the women's prerogative. Parts of the demand included banning the use of European coins, fixing prices on foodstuffs in the markets, and regulating the cloth that women and girls wore. And after the 1929 Women's War, despite its tragic end, with as many as 50 women killed, women continued to collectively act and make war against European colonialism and administrative corruption. Wando Achibe outlines the Oso Soja Women's War, a response to the local elite's complicity in the disappearance of Obukpa sons during World War II 
and in 1952, the Atik Po Ite Women's War launched against the corrupt practices of colonial sanitation inspectors. And as we suggested at the top of the episode, people in Nigeria resisted British imperialism in a variety of ways throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, including through military action, strikes, and when possible, manipulation of the system to their advantage. These moments of collective action, typically organized by women, could range in goals from trying to fix an immediate and regional problem, like a a pipe water fee, to bigger national goals, like demanding the white men leave altogether. Even if these women's movements were not successful in overthrowing the colonial system altogether, they were successful in pushing for and renegotiating the terms of colonialism. Though Wanyira was heralded as the hero of the war on Okugo, the Oloko women were organized by the leaders of the women's assemblies in Oloko, Ikonia, Wanedi, and Wugo. These women orchestrated the mobilization of women in Oloko and then facilitated the spread of, sometimes false, information and tales of Wanyira's heroism to the surrounding villages to encourage other women to action. News of Wanyerwa's victory spread throughout Oweri province and inspired women throughout the region to action. Many visited Wanyerwa, bringing her tributes of 10 pence or 15 pence, which she used to pay the expenses so that women from Oloko could travel to Bendi to watch Okugo's trial. In the week following Okugo's sentencing, women across Oweri met and planned. According to Wugo, one of the Oloko leaders, quote, these women argued that all the warrant chiefs' caps to be removed and for no one to take grievances to the native courts, that all these buildings should be burned. Taxes were not the only issues that the women were mobilizing against. They insisted that the clerks and warrant chiefs were responsible for a range of cultural violations and injustices. In Yermaka, an Igbo woman said that, quote, we also insisted that prices of produce such as palm oil and ground nuts were to be settled at once. Further, as historians like Fayola, Paddock, and Achibe and Corey have all demonstrated, the women were opposed fundamentally to European imperialism, which had clearly disrupted the balance of power in eastern Nigeria. On December 9th, women from the aware Owerinta native court area decided to protest as the local women had. The Orwinta women hadn't been threatened with taxation. As Feola and Paddock note, it was clear that their intentions were to overthrow the colonial administration. They protested at Orwinta, then Akpala, beating the colonial buildings with sticks, attempting to break into the building to steal colonial records and chase warrant chiefs out of town. Colonial administrators, like Mr. Ferguson, the district officer of Awari, tried to appease the women, reporting that, quote, they all produced one request or another, which I answered to the best of my ability. The groups of women who converged on places like Okpala and Owerinta numbered in the thousands. The leaders of the mobilization coordinated across towns, messengers, running decisions, and plans for when to attack and when to hold position. Attacks intensified on December 9th and 10th, with coordinated convergences on colonial structures in Guru and Gore. Women released prisoners in the native courts, destroyed court records, and tore down the buildings on the native court compound. On December 11th, all the women from Orienta's protests traveled to Amorji, expecting Wanyerwa to show up at the market there. 
She did not, and after Okugo's sentencing, it's not clear if she continued to participate in the war at all. In Aba, instead of focusing on colonial buildings and indigenous collaborators, the women attacked Europeans and their factories. Women attacked British officials and then the Niger Company factories. They looted European stores, throwing stones and sticks to break the windows, and then taking cases of soap, stockfish, and other articles. One European, a Dr. Hunter, was driving to breakfast with a nurse and drove into a crowd of women. He claimed to, quote, swerved to avoid one and instead hit two others, then drove off without stopping to help. Women hit his car with sticks and threw stones. To try to curb the advance of the women, the ABBA police set up pickets at strategic locations to stop women from getting to certain areas. The women were forced to turn back, but not until after they'd inflicted a good deal of property damage. Between December 12th and 14th, women continued to meet and submit complaints to British officials and launch attacks throughout Oweri province. On December 15th, a group of approximately 2,500 women tried to get into Oweri. British police stopped them outside town, chasing them away. The next day, they returned with 4,000 women, while another 2,000 tried to enter from a different road. All were met with baton-wielding police. The biggest battle was at Apobo on December 15th and 16th. Women attacked the colonial government buildings, including the dispensary, native court, and post office. When they met him on the street in the course of their attacks, the women told a shop owner, Mr. Boron, that they were going to loot his store the next day. He believed them and prepared barricades against their incursions. He asked them why, as he recognized two women who were the wives of colonial agents, and they told him that they, quote, will go to the meeting. White people do such bad things to black men and women and tax them. The next morning, as the women were attempting to breach Boren's store, British military officer Lieutenant Hill arrived with 30 soldiers. The district officer, Whitman, met with the women and asked what they wanted. They provided a list of demands. Whitman reiterated that the women could not be taxed, but told them he'd have to take the other issues to the government. He continued to talk with them, and they lodged their concerns. Women from Oweri were angry that the markets had been moved. Women from Opobo didn't want to pay fees for the use of trading stalls, and they all issued their annoyance that European firms were taking their business. Whitman considered most of their complaints frivolous, but he continued to talk with them in an effort to diffuse the situation. But women continued to assemble, their numbers growing. The women ridiculed Lieutenant Hill's soldiers, and they advanced on the government compound. The women believed that the soldiers would not shoot at them. They were wrong. At the Apobo confrontation, the British soldiers opened fire on the crowd of advancing women, killing at least 31 and wounding many others. Across the province, the British only dispersed the protesters with lots of police, soldiers, and even some armed Boy Scouts. The resistance and mobilization continued at a smaller scale in the region for another week. The mass collective action was ended with gun violence. According to Judith Van Allen, the British followed up the confrontations with, quote, punitive expeditions in which they burned or demolished compounds, confiscated property to enforce fines levied arbitrarily against villages to pay for damages from the disturbances, and took provisions from the villages for troops, end quote. Under the collective punishment ordinance, the British colonial government had district officers determine which regions were most guilty and then fined entire villages. 
As Fiola and Paddock note, the British underestimated the Igbo and Abibio women from the start and continued to underestimate them in the weeks following, during the commission inquiry and summative reports. At every turn, the British expected the Igbo women to behave like Victorian women, not organized armed warriors. So too, the Igbo women expected the Europeans to bend to and behave in culturally appropriate ways. Some historians have categorized the women's war as a failure because the women lost the final violent confrontations and their villages were forced to pay for the damages that they wrought across Awari and Calabar provinces. But as Fayola and Paddock note, the Commission of Inquiry, which interviewed dozens of participants and witnesses, also listened to the concerns that were raised about the corrupt warrant chiefs. The women's demands that white men should leave Nigeria were ignored, their secondary demands, that women should serve on the native courts and that a woman should be appointed to a district officer position, were regarded by the British as irrational and ridiculous. But the British colonial office did eventually diffuse the warrant chief's power when reforms in 1933 replaced the chiefs with massed benches, where several judges convened to make decisions. Despite this tiny victory, British colonialism continued to chip away at traditional modes of women's collective action. Sitting on a man was outlawed after 1933, and Christian missionary work prevented women from gatherings as they had in the past if they wanted to pursue education, which they did. Education was universally prized in Igbo culture. Participation in pagan rituals were forbidden by the missionaries, and women were not supposed to participate in the gatherings of women that were traditionally spaces for both planning important indigenous religious rites and festivals and for dealing with community issues like abusive husbands or errant wives. For 50 years, British colonial reports and historians referred to the 1929 events as the Abba Riots. British authorities thought that men were secretly directing and organizing this mobilization of women, though there was never any evidence to suggest that. Even the first dedicated monograph, The Road to Abba by Harry Gailey, published in 1970, referred to it as a riot. Judith Van Allen, a political scientist, was the first to argue that it was not a riot. Scholars and colonial officials had designated this a riot because they saw it as an emotional, reactionary movement responding to possible taxation. Van Allen made the argument that this was a war, which placed into the specific context of the Igbo culture and Igbo women's social, political, and religious positionality in particular, it is clear that this was an example of the ways that women, quote-unquote, made war in Igbo society. Van Allen also argued that the women's war was collective action of women, planned and deployed in response to the years of British colonialism, which had denied women their traditional assertion of political and collective action. Van Allen wrote her first essay on the Igbo Women's War in 1972. Among the Igbo, the events were called the Ogu Umunywani. The closest translation to English is Women's War. Now most Nigerian scholars either say Ogu Umunywani or Women's War. Yet the debate over what to call these four weeks in 1929 has persisted to today and the language of riot continues, particularly in British-originating sources. A 2020 BBC video, for example, refers to it as the Abba Riots. Language matters, of course, and particularly when we think about the colonial intent of phrasing. In this case, there are two issues of context at play. 
On the one hand, if we place this collective action of Igbo and Ibibio women into the proper cultural context of Igbo society, it's clear that we should acknowledge the movement and its impact as an anti-colonial war waged by Igbo and Ibibio women. On the other hand, if we want to understand why there might still, in 2020, be a division in what to call the 1929 protests, we need only look at the sources. Among some Nigerian scholars and activists, the Women's War of 1929 represented a significant moment of nationalist anti-colonial resistance. Among some British institutions, the events took place during British colonial rule, which make the protests unlawful and destructive riots, which is how British colonial sources reported the events back to the Home Office and how British scholars framed the events for decades afterwards without much consultation of the people who were most affected. So I actually have a question. Yes. And I was, I was kind of writing notes as we were going through here. Um, so at one point you mentioned the police, like baton wielding police. And then another time you mentioned, you know, even some, some boy scouts, um, you know, were, 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 uh, um, you know, put Armed, against yeah. the women or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So were these Nigerian police? Yes. Like, okay. Yes. And like the boy scouts, were they yes. Nigerian boys? Yep. And okay. the soldiers also would have been except for the officers. Gotcha. Yes. That is the nature of British indirect rule. Right. Right. No, I like this. Good. I mean, I don't like it, but I like, I like the um, context of using the word riot. We have the same problem in American history, calling things race riots when they're really race massacres, usually white people killing and looting black neighborhoods and businesses and people. Yeah. And I was thinking about that, too, um, because I just taught the Boston Tea Party in my British Empire class and um, the Boston Massacre, that moment when like five people Mm -hmm. are killed by British soldiers, five Bostonians versus like the way that the American colonists framed all of their interactions and like violent episodes with the Native Americans, like like King Philip's War and all these other things, right? Like that. Mm -hmm. Who's the aggressor and and or. Is it a massacre? Is it a is it a skirmish? Is it a is it a riot? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you can right. you can definitely see the like the victors and the way that they shape these interactions through language to sort of I don't know soft pedal their culpability. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you can even look at our wounded knee episode, mm-hmm. our episode on wounded knee. A lot of the sources that were uh, collected by the Indian Bureau called it. Uh, the fight at Wounded Knee, right? And now we, of course, call it the Wounded Knee Massacre. Right. Yeah. So it's just yep, a matter of... Matters. I think. Yeah, and this is, you know, this is another thing that when we talk to our students, obviously, we... It's, it's important, I think, to remember that history is made and remade and that historians, yeah. students of history, are the ones who do the remaking because it's, it's something that's written and we take all those perspectives and we reframe it and we reforge it and we change the legacy of the harms that we've done to each other and what that means for the present. Well said. Yeah. So thanks everyone for listening. Uh, make sure that you check us out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at dig underscore history. You can join our dig uh, history pod squad, which is like a place where you can share your memes and your favorite things about history and what you've learned or ask us questions. Cause we're always on there and we're always answering questions. Uh, you can send us a question or a comment via our email at hello at dig 
And for all you educators out there who are listening, uh, make sure you check out our website, digpodcast.org, where we uh, have a bunch of free lesson plans, ways to incorporate these these episodes into your class, um, and, and ideas for just using podcasts in, in general in your class. Um, and if you want to look real good like a dig historian, check out our swag store. It's also on our website, uh, digpodcast.org. You got it all. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Orinta. That wasn't really possible in the Ibu dominated region. Ibu. Suka. The Suka Is it na or. Well, it's like the. That back thing. Mark. Emerwa. By the time that Mark Emerwa got to Emir, okay, let me do it again. Emerwa got to Emerwas. Is that right? No, that's the same word. This should be one yerwa. One yerwa. Of demands. Uh, I just realized that I let that student take that test and the rest of the class hasn't taken it yet, so I'm just sending an email. I'm realizing I should have kept that test until anyone, everyone has taken it. I'm trusting you to keep that to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll just see how that goes. Okay, sorry about that. And summative reports. Sum, summative. <laughs> that one's English, so that one's on you. <laughs>